What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Chaos Ball Podcast. Welcome to a special edition of the podcast, a little mini-pod, a special mini-pod per se, about the International Signing Day that recently happened a couple weeks ago. I did promise a special episode on this in my last just off-season update episode, so here it is. Um, just going to break down what what the Mariners did specifically in International Signing Day, as well as uh, some of the issues with the current international system that I've been meaning to talk about for a long time because I think things just need to change. Uh, the system is pretty antiquated. Uh, it, it calls for a lot of things to be to be fixed, and I will go over them in this podcast. But let's just kick it off here by explaining kind of how the international system works, what goes on in International Signing Day, for those who don't know. If you're tuning in, I'm sure you understand the core concept of what the international signings are for, obviously, and how it works. But I'm just going to give a quick overview, go over how the bonuses work, uh, what the Mariners did, and then go into the system that currently needs fixing. So let's kick it off uh, with just International Signing Day. It is a great day for so many players and families. Uh, and if you know, you're know you familiar with how it works, I'll still break it down. It's It's a little complicated. Uh, and I'll go into things in more detail here, but roughly 30% of the current MLB player base were originally signed as international free agents. Some of the games, like biggest stars, came from the system that you know, like Juan Soto, Vlad Jr., Fernando Tatis, Julio Rodriguez. The list goes on and on. I mean, just look at the Dominican Republic WC team. It's Loaded with talent. All those guys came from the international signing system. Uh, it's a good reference point for just how big of a of presence in the MLB that international signings have. Uh, the majority of them usually come from the Dominican Republic, as is the case this year and most years. Uh, but uh, Venezuela and Cuba as well are probably the other big two that follow the Dominican Republic uh, but there are, recently I've noticed a lot more guys coming out of the Bahamas. Uh, Jazz Chisholm, the biggest one, obviously. But recently, especially this season, I noticed a lot more uh, guys from the Bahamas uh, in the international signings, which is nice, which is cool. And then there are always like a few guys from Mexico, uh, like Colombia, Panama, Haiti, uh, Aruba, like Xander Bogarts is from Aruba, Curacao, uh, Ecuador, Nicaragua. And then there's usually a few guys from Japan, Korea, Taiwan, you know. Uh, there's been a few guys in recent years that have signed out of Uganda, which is really cool. Like, the Dodgers signed a couple guys last year from Uganda. There was one more guy from Uganda this year that signed on International Signing Day. So that's pretty sweet. Don't see a lot of players coming out of Africa, so that's really encouraging, really cool. Mariners signed a guy from the Netherlands, which is sick. Uh, there was a guy from Italy who signed this year, too. There are always some here and there in the rest of the world, but like it's mostly confined to Central and South America. And the way it works is just generally there's a period in which you can sign these kids every year, although the deals are negotiated way in advance now um, before they're technically allowed to, to negotiate, uh, but I'll get into that a little bit later. Each team essentially has a bonus pool that they're allowed to spend on players, and your, your bonus pool depends on your revenue and market size. So, like, the smallest and most, like, broke boy teams get the most money to spend, while the big, big fat cats like the Dodgers, Yankees, you know, get, get the least amount of money to spend to start. 
but there are like penalties and 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 gains you can make. So signing MLB free agents with a qualifying offer attached can um, result in a bonus pool penalty. Uh, you can also trade a portion of your bonus pool. I believe you can trade up to 60% of your bonus pool money. Uh, and then paying the competitive balance tax, like being over the luxury tax, also uh, reduces your bonus pool money. And then this year, how the bonuses shook out, uh, there were basically five tiers of bonuses for teams this year. The highest being around $6.3 million, nearing $6.4 million. Uh, the Athletics, the Brewers, the Mariners, the Marlins, the Rays, the Reds, the Tigers, and the Twins all had that amount of money to spend. The next tier was the $5.8 million that went to the Diamondbacks, the Guardians, the Orioles, the Padres, the Pirates, the Rockies, and the Royals. And then there's one, the next tier is about $5.2 million. Uh, the Astros, the Blue Jays, the Braves, the Cardinals, Cubs, Giants, Mets, Nationals, White Sox, and Yankees belong to that tier. And then the two bottom tiers, uh, $4.6 million around. Uh, the Angels, Phillies, and the Red Sox had. And then the bottom tier was around $4.1 million, which went to the Dodgers and the Rangers. Um, and for example, like the Rangers signed Nate Eovaldi and Andrew Heaney and Jacob deGrom, all qualifying offer guys, potentially, I'm pretty sure, which reduced their overall spending cap. And then the Dodgers have been over the luxury tax the past few seasons, which also affected their signing bonuses as well. So that's kind of how it all shaked out this year. So those teams choose to spend this signing money how they see fit. They don't technically have to spend all of it, although they should spend all of it. There's no reason not to spend all of it. Uh, but it's really interesting to see how teams do it because you could theoretically spend it all on one player. Um, how most teams do when they get the top guys is generally spend the majority on one player and then sign a bunch of other players to a lot of smaller deals. Uh, specifically, we'll get into what the Seattle Mariners did. So they locked up a slew of international players, but obviously there are two signings that stand above the rest. The number 42 in the class, Jeter Martinez, Signed with the Mariners for a signing bonus of $600,000. And then the huge signing we all know by now is Felman Celestin, the number two international prospect. Uh, we signed him to a $4.7 million signing bonus. So lots of money. And just between those guys, that is roughly like 80% of the total amount of money we had for international prospects. And that is a good way to spend it for sure. I'll break down who these guys are briefly. I know Felnin, there's a lot more stuff about Felnin because he was the number two. Uh, but he has been talked about insanely highly by every single writer, scout, executive, whatever, that has been around the international signing uh, space for the past like, year. Uh, just I've seen no, no one talk ill of him. All I've seen is praise and praise. Uh, he's 17. He's from the Dominican uh, and he's talked about as some of the having some of the best tools that we've seen from an international shortstop prospect since Wander Franco, which is crazy, crazy praise. I think specifically his hit tool um, likens to Wander Franco's, and Wander Franco's hit tool, I believe, was graded out as a 70 when he was coming up as a prospect. So big praise there. Uh, he's a switch hitter at shortstop, which is pretty cool. Uh, really high contact ability, like I said. 
um, good raw power and a, a huge frame for being 17. He's 6'2", 182 pounds, and that will only continue to fill out as he gets older. So the raw power is good right now, but as he works on his swing and strength, he'll only get more powerful. And then I've seen that he just he has good defensive abilities as well. Just appears to be a solid defensive shortstop. Uh, I think he probably projects to be a hitter first, but not a below average shortstop. And I'm sure he will work at that as well. Really like a huge potential five-tool franchise cornerstone shortstop, it seems like. And I know Jerry DePoto loves, loves talking about those five-tool players. So it's a great signing. Um, and uh, I'll read some quotes of more uh, knowledgeable folk than me of what they had to say on him. MLB.com also said that, quote, he plays with flair, end quote, which just means he's from Central or South America. Uh, they always say that they play with flair, although they do. I'm getting kind of tired of reading that about these players. Of course they play with flair. They, they have fun playing baseball. It's crazy. It's a crazy concept. Um, but here's a quote from uh, the Mariners' director of international scouting, Frankie Thon Jr. Quote, getting to know Felnan as a person has been just as rewarding as getting to evaluate him as a player. The flair, there it is again, the flair again. Uh, the flair, confidence, swagger that he displays between the lines is complemented by a soft-spoken, polite, and thoughtful disposition off the field. Felnan certainly has all the ingredients to eventually grow into an impactful member of the Mariners organization in every sense of the word. And then more quotes from Baseball America. Uh, quote, the combination of hitting ability, tools, athleticism at a premium position makes Celestin the top shortstop in his class for many scouts. End quote. And then the last quote you hear about him is from MLB Pipeline. Quote, when you consider his tools and skills, this teenager might have the highest ceiling of international any international shortstop in a decade, end quote. Crazy high praise for him, uh, but clearly from these quotes and then everything else I've read or heard about him is that he's, one, really talented and athletic, but also super humble, super nice guy, like soft-spoken, very dedicated to his craft and improving his game. So clearly a great addition to the organization. Uh, and obviously his potential is through the roof considering like his size and athleticism right now. And I'm not an LB scout, but I watched videos of him taking balls at short. He looked pretty smooth. And then watched videos of him taking some batting practice. And that swing is beautiful. That swing is gorgeous. Like, from both sides of the plate, it's nice. But particularly the lefty swing, it's just effortless. I can see why his, his, his hitting graded out so well as a young kid. It's just a beautiful swing. You do not need to be an LB scout to appreciate that. And it's not always nice to hear about prospects being like humble, nice, personable. I think it's an invaluable trait to have in prospects coming up through your system of them being a good dude. Like look at Julio, man. Julio is one of the nicest, more like personable guys we've ever seen come through our system and uh it shows in his game. Junior Martinez is the other guy who I mentioned, the number forty two overall prospect. I don't have as much to say about him, but I will read uh, word for word what MLB.com said about him, but he's a 6'3 pitcher from Mexico, and he's 16 right now. And here's what MLB.com had to say about him. Uh, quote, he's a very projectable body and tons of flexibility. He projects to be a starter if he can maintain his consistency in the strike zone and improve his secondary pitches. For now, his fastball hovers in the 89 to 91 mile an hour range, and his velocity expected is expected to increase as he matures and adds strength. 
there's already some sink in his fastball, and he creates some deception with his arm angle and has a high arm slot. There's some fade to his changeup and a sharp bite to his curveball, but both are works in progress. Uh, Yardy shows good command of the strike zone and has an idea of how to attack hitters. He has experience playing in the showcase circuit in the U.S., uh, and he's the top player from Mexico in this year's class, end quote. So uh, very, not cut and dry, but just pretty basic uh, pitching international prospects, mumbo jumbo in there. Like they're really for pitchers. It's harder to project than the hitters, but they're really looking for those tools. But more importantly, like the body, like he's 6'3, already throws pretty hard for 16, uh, and has some secondary stuff that already has movement and definitely will need to work on. But certainly some super projectable size and pitching arsenal tools. And then also. It, it said he has good command of the strike zone, has an idea of how to attack hitters. I think it's invaluable at that age to find a kid who is dedicated enough to study uh, his craft to to know how to attack hitters at such a young age. It's really interesting and definitely a big strength, especially from the hitter perspective as well. You look for kids with really high baseball IQ because sometimes they're just different and they are just smarter and go about things in a more methodical way. Like, Look at Juan Soto when he came up. Uh, he made his debut, and obviously we know how good he is at the plate and how he takes each at bat so seriously, and that's why he gets on base so much and has a crazy good eye. But he came up when he was a rookie, and he already had a very solid two-strike approach at the plate, which is honestly pretty, pretty crazy for a rookie to have one of the better two-strike approaches already. Speaks to Juan Soto and his IQ there, and part of what you look for in these guys so excited to see what they can do in the international complex and excited to watch some some videos of what what they're doing down there in the, in the future and then those are just the top two guys the Mariners signed like most teams they signed quite a few guys as well as their top I want to say the Mariners signed like 12 more dudes um, always good to remind yourself too. top signings don't necessarily always pan out uh, they're so young you can always do so much. You can only do so much projecting when they're that young. Uh, and all of them are, are works in progress. Just got to remind yourself that. Uh, and every year there's always guys who sign for really little money and make an impact at the big league level. Because um, the Astros specifically, they both they signed both Framber Valdez and Christian Javier when they signed. They signed them to $10,000 signing bonus deals. And 10000 is the max you can sign a guy that doesn't affect your uh, bonus pool cap. So you can sign as many guys to the 10000 as you want, and it doesn't affect that money at all. And those two guys are both very good pitchers for the Astros right now. And there's always guys who are not the best international prospects who turn out to be really good in the big. So you can never, never neglect any of these international signings, particularly because they're so young and they have so, so far to go in their career. But it's very exciting to see when your team signs a top international prospect. It's hard to not be excited about it. So I got a little excited. It's also a good reminder that we won't see these guys most likely for at least four to five years. Most likely more than that. Uh, it took Julio five years to see the bigs after we signed him. Because signed him in uh, 2017, I think. And he had his first year of stateside ball after the 2020 season. He got promoted twice and then made the spring training roster and then the big league roster the next year, and that was year number five, and that was a crazy jump. So 
him him developing that well and having a crazy jump into superstardom that young, five years after we signed him, says a lot about how far these prospects have to go. Uh, but International Signing Day, super bittersweet day in my eyes. Well, yes, it's it's a fantastic, monumentous day for these young kids, fulfilling their dream of playing professional baseball and like getting a chance uh, to sign a contract with life-changing money uh, and using that to help themselves and their families. Uh, I think it's perfectly fine to be super pumped for all those aspects while also acknowledging how broken and exploit ex- expletive uh, this system is and has been for so long now. Like the international free agent system the MLB has in place is just like a, a fucked up laissez-faire economy. Like it's just chaos and not the good kind of chaos like we love here at this show. The bad kind. The unethical, sinister kind of chaos. I'm going to need everyone to bear with me. This is going to be quite a rant. Because now I'm moving on. I'm moving on to how the system is so flawed. And we're going to start by talking about how the system kind of works. So it's generally a system that has, has really spiraled out of control and something really needs to be done. Uh, essentially, there are a bunch of these trainers in the Dominican Republic that have these talented kids at their facilities, at their academies, right? They house them, feed them, get them all the baseball gear they need, uh, educate them, train them on their baseball skills and all that in an effort to prepare them to get signed by an MLB team to then go to America, right? As time has gone on and more money has flowed into the system, the competition between trainers and athletes has gotten so intense and that has led to kids getting recruited at younger and younger ages to the point where trainers will recruit kids as young as 8 years old now to train at their academies, which it used to be in the 13-year-old, 14-year-old range, but now... MLB teams will go buck wild for a 14-year-old because he's been with a trainer for five to six years at that point. And they can't even sign until they're at least 16 years old. So it's crazy to me that kids can spend six years with a professional baseball trainer just to get signed by an MLB team at 16. Like, that is wild. So that's, like, the first issue. The rampant competition has increased exponentially. And the trainers are recruiting younger and younger. And that in and of itself is just kind of sinister to me because an 8-year-old, no matter how good they are at baseball, you got to let them be 8 years old for a little while too, man. you got to let them have some kid experiences. Uh, <laughs> and and maybe get them back with the trainers when they're 14. I don't know. It's just that's so young to send them off to an academy to dedicate their life to baseball. And there's just such high expectations now as well. It's just a lot of stuff to heap on a kid that's so young. Uh, But also now, trainers have really struggled to keep up with the demand of MLB teams in recent years too. So that puts more strain on the whole system. Uh, And they've voiced a lot of concerns with both like the expenses to house, feed, get the equipment, train these kids, but also just the general development timelines have all been pretty accelerated because of the level of demand in recent years. So it's understandable that the trainers have a lot on their plate um, with the more and more demand. It's just the the job is getting harder and harder, right? And then it's, it's understandable that these kids have dreams to go to the MLB for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but training seriously to be a professional athlete at eight years old is wild to me. 
Uh, and then also international directors have also voiced a lot of concerns on how crazy competitive it's gotten and how early you kind of have to be in on a player when they're so young in order to have an edge when they when come like negotiations time, right? With the MLB draft, you sort of do that, right? But everyone knows who the best players are going to be going into the draft. Like there's a general consensus. With this system, there's not as much of a consensus. So like cuz you're evaluating them at a much younger age, so it's much more competitive to like get in on the ground floor on a player because there's just less of a consensus on who the best players are cuz sometimes they don't pop up on your radar till they're 14 and have been training for a few years, right? This type of playing field just attracts like insanely competitive scouts and directors, making things more and more toxic as time goes on. Uh, and then another huge issue as well that's been talked about and I haven't mentioned yet is the performance enhancing drug use with these early teens that happens like sometimes a lot. Like I don't know about sometimes I, I've read a lot of articles citing PED use as an issue with these trainers and kids. Right. But the extent is something we will likely never fi- find out. Uh, and it's a huge issue uh, because the more and more competitive it gets, the more they're incentivized to take PEDs to get ahead of their competition to get a bigger uh, signing bonus. It's very similar to how the steroid era worked. If you weren't roiding up, you were falling behind your, your peers and that would affect your the contract. That would affect your livelihood. Like You could be out of the league if you weren't taking PEDs. Like, just to have a baseline contract in the MLB. So it's very similar down here. And I I haven't even started talking about how the money flows through the system either. Uh, just as, as time has gone on this century, baseball teams have just started agreeing verbally with the kids in their early teens a lot more and more as well. Uh, and the MLB has really just let an enormous amount of shit hit the fan and done absolutely nothing to clean it up. And it's just led to more and more corruption in the system that was already somewhat flawed to begin with, and now it's even more flawed. But now, now everyone, it's time to talk about cold hard cash, the real reason, and where a lot of these problems stem from, uh, how these deals get done, and like what makes the situation that much worse, like in multiple facets. First of all, the bonus money for international players is vastly inferior to the money that MLB draft picks get. The bonus pool money for each team in the MLB draft is double, if not triple, what they may have in the international bonus pool. There are more players to draft, which is fair, but the slot value of those picks is way higher for the top picks in the MLB draft than the top like international signings. It's certainly something I would change, <clears throat> at least for many of the top guys, because uh, they're just as highly touted by MLB teams and scouts as the top MLB draft picks are, and they get way less money. Like, dudes like Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis, like I mentioned, like, once upon a time, they were Dominican international free agents and received way lower signing bonuses than their MLB draft eligible counterparts. And I don't see that as very fair. They are younger. However, the the scouting grades and how touted they are, I just don't see why they're, they're paid less, like, bonus-wise. And then... As I mentioned, the competition has gotten so fierce. The more the competition has gotten, the more insane the competition has gotten, the more money that's flowed into the system. 
So teams have also started agreeing with kids at a younger and younger ages. And when you think about it, it's just pretty nasty to negotiate a contract for a kid who's like 12 or 13 years old. But the reason they do this is because by verbally agreeing with a player, you can basically take him off the market till he's 16 and he's kind of yours. Uh, and so this system has just incentivized teams to try to beat the competition and talk to the players first. So that spirals out of control. They start talking to 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds. It just got to get in on this 12-year-old. He's, 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 six, he's six one. he's 12. I got to verbally agree to a contract to sign him four years down the road. It's crazy. And the MLB rules have not really cracked down on this at all, really, which just makes matters worse. So why wouldn't you do that? if there's really no penalty for doing so, right? So these teams have started agreeing to verbal agreements with these players younger, right? So why is that a huge issue? Besides the fact, of course, how how informed uh, of a decision can these kids make on their futures when they're, let alone 16, uh, 12? Like, how are you going to negotiate uh, or even get across to them that this is a deal they should take right now or shouldn't take if they're that young. What's worse is that, like, because of it, it makes, it causes these kids, they have, like, basically no leverage to negotiate for themselves. And I'm just going to set up a scenario for you here. So let's just say there's an MLB team scouting this kid. Let's call the kid Jimmy. Let's say Jimmy is 14. They may approach Jimmy and say, hey, we really want to agree to sign you when you're 16 and you're 14. So let's promise three and a half million dollars signing bonus for you because you think we're the, you're, we think you're the real deal. So we want to lock you into that right now. So two years down the road, we can pay you that money. Right. And so for the next two years, Jimmy will be with his trainer working hard at his game uh, trying to get better, knowing he has that contract with the team coming, but he still obviously wants to to get better. So maybe he's taking PEDs. I don't know. And in the meantime as well, that team is is going around verbally agreeing to more deals with a few other guys. And let's say they get a, a little bit in over their head here. They agreed to, to a couple big deals, and now, oh, man, I've, I've verbally agreed over my, my team's cap for international signing. So when the time comes to finally sign the deal with Jimmy, the MLB team goes up to Jimmy and says, hey, sorry, kid. I know we agreed to $3.5 million, but we are over our cap now with other agreed deals, so we can only promise you $1.5 million now. It's like, stop. Record scratch. You may be thinking, oh, why doesn't Jimmy just go bring his services to another team, right? Because he can't. At that point... Every other team has their deals agreed to or are doing the same shit like this. And he's been on the, off the market for two years, so other teams have not been heavily scouting him. So he can't really walk away. He, he has to accept that. And I'm not saying $1.5 million is not a lot of money in this hypothetical scenario. But when you're promised something more and get something less and have no power to argue that, uh, can't you see how somewhat fucked up that is? So Jimmy has to accept this deal even though it's $2 million less than originally agreed upon. This happens really often, apparently, in this system. And on top of all of this, there's one other way the money flows in this system, and it's from MLB scouting directors to trainers. 
it's been uncovered that a lot of trainers receive under-the-table payments for direct access to these players in their academies. And this speaks to how corrupt the system has gotten as well uh, and how much of a hold these trainers have over the players in their academies. They can kind of dictate who they go to now if they get paid under the table. So the money is, is messed up like threefold in this system. It flows completely the wrong ways and gets tossed around too willy-nilly with kids who are too young to negotiate for themselves. It, it really doesn't allow amateur international free agents to receive the money they deserve compared to their MLB draft counterparts. Lack of negotiating power and leverage just allows them to get walked all over in these negotiations. And then the under-the-table payments in this whole ordeal just make things worse. Oh, jeez. Oh, I haven't even talked about... Okay, the trainers as well, they often receive up to half of the player's signing bonus in a deal, basically as a tax for training them. I'm not adamantly against them receiving money because they did train them for a while, but half is simply too much. Like, give them like 10%, 15% max, man. Like, come on. The majority of that money should go in the player's hands, not half of it especially if they get negotiated down in the last few days before the signing. Like, it's just so, so fucked up. Okay, deep breaths. Deep breaths. Can't you see how awesome this system is? Isn't it just great? Uh, there is, like, one good thing about all of this. Well, okay, two, two good things. The money, like, no matter what, like, most of this money is absolutely life-changing, like I said earlier. So it makes this day so special. Like this money is life changing. Like every guy will use it to help themselves, but first and foremost, all of them usually use it to help their families get out of poverty wherever they're living, which is awesome. That's fantastic. Like that's amazing. And the other thing that's related to that, like most of these kids generally come from poverty situations. Uh, so the kids in the academies, like being able to house and feed them, is a fantastic thing, and especially train them. Uh, to play baseball at a higher level, which basically gives them a leg up in this world that uh, has given them basically little to no other opportunities to get a leg up, which is really cool that they have this opportunity. And the academies, like, they feed them way more than they would, they would ever eat at home. They dress them in nice clothes. They give them an education they probably wouldn't ever receive if they weren't at these academies. And it's... It's a good system to at least help these kids in poverty, right? But it's one thing to, like, give the kids an opportunity to change their lives and their families' lives. And, like, they're playing a sport they love and they can get to sign with an MLB team. But that comes with this gruesome cost of such a toxic culture that promotes corruption between the powers that control the system. And it's created the culture amongst the kids and trainers to do whatever it takes become bigger, faster, stronger, better at baseball just in order to get a better MLB deal, even if that means using PEDs at such a young age. And at the end of it all, when they finally reach their end goal of signing with an MLB team, they have absolutely no leverage and often get less money than they're originally promised in these negotiations. So it's just terrible. It's just an awful system. And how, how can we change it? The biggest thing that has been proposed numerous times is an international draft. Um, it was proposed before the 2016 CBA. It was proposed before this most recent 22, 2022 CBA negotiations. 
but obviously it hasn't been passed through in those CBAs. I am fully expecting in the next CBA negotiations in 2026, there will be an international draft in that CBA. I'm pretty confident in that because as this discourse in these coming years as well will only ramp up like it has since the 2016 CBA. Um, and the 2016 one, even they put a lot of good stuff in that regarding international free agents, but it has just spiraled out of control since then as well. So in the meantime, before the 2026 CBA negotiations, like what can be done? First of all, I, I just think the MLB needs to institute really harsh rules for negotiating with players before they're 16. Uh, and if they don't deem that realistic, then at least prevent teams from like talking to the kids until they're at least 15, like leaving a year before they are allowed to sign rather than getting to talk to them when they're like 11 or 12, right? But how could we circumvent the issue with players getting promised more money and receiving a lesser amount? I like, let's just say you can agree with a player when they're 15, but not officially. However, let's just make make a rule. It has to be in writing if you agree to them before they're 16 with a third party there as a witness and force the MLB teams to honor what they've promised when they actually turn 16 and are eligible to be signed. I could circumvent some of the issues. I don't know how they'd get around that. There's probably They'd probably figure out ways to get around it. But it, as you can see, like the issues run so deep that some of these are like impossible to fix right now because how do you stop players from taking PEDs to get an edge uh and how do you stop teams from breaking these rules when stuff is so hard to enforce down there in the Dominican Republic like it's not like the MLB has jurisdiction down there to do anything like part of it I I think would they the MLB would have to hire like auditors both internally and external auditors to check the finances to see where the money's going and see what international directors are paying trainers for better like perks and stuff. Like besides the MLB hiring of like a private police force or army to enforce these academies to make sure everything is above board, which would never happen. I don't know how you change the culture completely. An international amateur like free agent draft would get rid of some of these challenges of the system. The main one being that money to the players. Uh, I think international draft is the way to at least get rid of some of these problems. It's a good start. It would at least get rid of that promised verbally agreed amount issue and give like no incentive to teams to talk to kids and agree with them as young as 12 or just before 16 in general because everyone would be on a very equal, similar playing field with a draft. There would generally be more of a consensus on who the top picks would be going into the draft so these kids would not know what team they're on before the draft and then they... After they're drafted, they can get their promised slot money like the MLB draft works or at least given more power to negotiate with the team that drafted them for the money they deserve based on whatever the slot value would be, right? But the draft would like likely not to get rid of the PED issue, unfortunately. I guess the MLB like could institute that all academies have to drug test their kids every week or something, but I don't know how you strictly enforce that. And I'm 100% sure that they would figure out a way around it. It's just it's just such a complicated issue that once you start trying to fix one aspect, you open up a whole other can of worms. It's just such an absolute shit show. But that was my rant. That is it. I'm hoping all of you learned something new today about what's going on down there. 
And this is why every year, International Free Agent Signing Day is very bittersweet to me. Because uh, it's it's a super cool day, like I said. But the whole ordeal is just marred with controversy. Not to mention, it is similar to the MLB draft in that it's just weird to me to get super, super hyped about signing or drafting a kid you won't even see play in the big leagues for so long. I mean, <laughs> I, I do get a little excited. Like, it's fun to get excited. But the whole... MLB signing and draft process is just so different, like especially compared to other American sports like the NFL or NBA, where guys will make an e immediate impact after getting drafted. It's just so different, uh, and we do get a little bit of that with free agents from Japan or South Korea who sign when they're post twenty five, like Shohei or anything, because those players could theoretically be included in the international free agent signing if they're under twenty five, but. They can't sign a big league contract before then, so we got to wait. That system also could be revamped, but that's a conversation for another day. So I appreciate everyone for listening. This is, I'm wrapping up here. I hope this was a good listen for those who didn't know as much about all the ongoings that surround the international amateur free agents and the signing day and all that. Uh, personally, once I get elected commissioner of baseball and Rob Manfred is deposed, uh, I will make these changes. But until then, I think we must continue to have conversations like this. Uh, I think it's really important to not forget about what's going on and constantly be trying to think of ways we can improve this system because, as you can see, it's clearly broken and very corrupt and things need to change. But, honestly, I'm looking forward to watching Felon and Celestin win MVP in 2029, personally. Uh, but I hope you all have a great rest of your day. Go spread the word of the Chaos Ball podcast to the masses. And most importantly, go Mariners.